0: Thank you for tuning to the Outlaw Podcast with your host, Robert Dalton. New episodes weekly. Like, share, and subscribe.
1: Hey guys, welcome back to Outlaw's Podcast. Appreciate y'all tuning back in. We've uh, had a nice little hiatus for us. We kind of took a little two-week break. We did a lot and got as much out of the way as we could, you know. Did extra episodes and such that we would we wouldn't have really a break. So now it's time for us to get back into it. Now that the holiday seasons are over. And we're just gonna go ahead and kick off with a new uh with really a new season. We're gonna we're gonna continue to do our tell your story, but with uh, with some scheduling conflicts, we're just gonna go ahead whenever we can get someone lined up, we're gonna go into this second season. Or this I'm sorry, third season. Yeah, it will be, be third season of what we're doing. So without further ado, Robert, so yeah, this season's going to be
0: about more or less like Britain's
1: Wow. Sue me, okay. It's not my fault, all right? It's, I can't um, help my phone. I'll, I I'll turn my phone on silent. I'm so sorry. Sue me. <laughs> Basically, we're going to be talking about like, military <laughs>
0: history Um. throughout the uh, basically, throughout I guess recorded human history, so just be like talking about um modern weaponry and tactics, um, and where they came from and uh,
1: strategies that you know have lasted throughout the centuries, I guess. Mm-hmm. So, like modern modern
0: military strategies, that yeah, because people just didn't wake up one day and like, oh, that seems like a good idea, like, they're just, they're just like there's a track record of um. <clears throat> Uh, operations and stuff like that throughout our history that have um, obviously that have been successful. And so we just kind of keep reincorporating them with a, you know, a spin with modern weapons, modern, modern, technology. modern technology.
1: That's, that's the big one, especially in today's world with the technological Yeah. The past 20 years. Yes. That's like, it's one of those that it's hard to keep up with and keep your tactics. And I like, guess as like- long as what, I mean, for instance, what we're seeing in the Ukraine right now with, you know, how Russia has been trying to hammer the Ukraine. They've been coming out of like world war two tactics as much as they possibly can. Yeah. And now and, the,
0: like in the news, like now we're sending Abrams, we're sending Abrams tanks, Germany sending them leopard twos, mm-hmm. I think. So it's kind of like, it's one of these things. It's like, you're going to see, um, newer tanks. This will be the first time that a Abrams has gone up against a T 80 or T 90. that's manned by a Russian crew. So like obviously they went up against them, um, in the early days of the Iraq War in 03, but this is the first time they're actually going to be manned by Russian crews, which is kind of a big deal as far as like you know, um, technology like basically like seeing how the
1: technology stacks up versus ours. Exactly. Same, same thing that we wish we would have done during the Cold War, I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: The proxy war. So. Essentially, that's what it is. Um, if you look at it, um, from the um, kind of like the research and development side. That's why like the Uni- the U.S. and other NATO nations keep sending them some of their, I would say, newer stuff, but some stuff they've had in circulation for a while that they still like regularly use to see is it something that's going to hold up against you know a near peer or peer to peer war. Which I mean, like as much as I kind of don't gr- don't agree with the Russian-Ukraine war as far as like the support. From the US, I think that that's still kind of a neat idea to see because we've been told, I know at least I've been told my entire military career that Russia is like the big enemy. Like, that's the big one. That's like, that's the Super Bowl. Um, but uh, I think this would be a good opportunity for um, at least world leaders and strategists alike to see how well
1: NATO's equipment stacks up against Russia's. It's kind of sad to think that war is just a strategy game like that with old people just, you know. Well, did, you ever play, did you ever play this? Did
0: you, you know, like play, um, like board games when you were a kid? Yeah, yeah, so when I was a kid, I was kind of weird, but um, when I was a kid, my dad and I used to play a game called Axes and Allies. I saw that, I remember that, game. and essentially that is it's like risk on steroids. So, um, but you know, if you look at it, that's kind of that's the way war is. Um, is as much as it pains me to say this, like we're basically like the pawns. You'll get like a chessboard where the pawns and we kind of do the bidding of the king and queen, i.e. the Department of Defense um, and the nation itself. So they kind of control what we do, what we can and can't do, like the moves we're going to make, which really, if you look at it, hasn't really been a thing in the past 20 years because it hasn't been like this massive campaign. Like, you know, we're going to take. Um, you know, we're gonna take this one region. We're gonna stay there. We're gonna hold it. I think the last big operation that was like that was Ramadi, and yeah, in Even then, we left, and then you know it reverted back to the way it was prior to. So the last time we saw tactics like like what's being used in Ukraine was World War Two and even a little bit of Korea because we still had that World War yeah, Two yeah. mindset,
1: World of- War Two mindset of stop and hold, stop mm-hmm. and hold, advance, hold, advance, like having hold. designated battle lines, yeah. Um, and I just hasn't which been a I mean thing. the flots are still a thing for line of troops. They're still a thing even in today's modern army, but at the same time with how technology and how assets are mm-hmm. organized, it's not it's more fluid than it is anything like they there's they bend and flex depending on there's a lot more whatever they're... is being needed.
0: Well, there's a lot more variables nowadays, like the 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 regard, not the disregard, but the regard of like human life and infrastructure and stuff like that is now more in the forefront of war fighting than it was in World War II, Korea, Vietnam. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like the days of the massive bombing campaigns are over. The last time we did a massive bombing campaign was the Toribor Mountains so when we tried to find Osama bin Laden in 2002. Yeah. And even then, we're not hitting civilian infrastructure targets like that. Now, granted, that part of Afghanistan didn't really have infrastructure, but even then, like that was the last time there was a major bombing, quote unquote, campaign. Prior to that, I think it was Vietnam. It was Vietnam, Vietnam
1: with a uh, with
0: Operation Rolling Thunder, Rolling, Rolling Thunder, Thunder two, two, Linebacker, Linebacker mm-hmm. Two, like the big bombing campaigns of northern uh, of North Vietnam. Yeah, so, Vietnam um, was nothing
1: but a bomb fest. Bomb, yeah, bomb, I mean, bomb I, bomb. I can't. I
0: don't know what the the actual what the poundage, the or tonnage, t- ended up being, but. I think I heard something where it said that the amount of tonnage could equate to, I think, two little boys. And just in in the weight and the magnitude of the destruction that it caused.
1: It just doesn't have radiation, at least, thank God. Yeah. Well, (laughs) and, you know, but
0: that's like, that's a perfect example of the tactic that was used from 19, because I mean, bombing campaigns have kind of been, they kind of started coming around World War I, where they were just basically like dropping bombs in the trenches by hand. Yeah. Um, and then you know, World War II, the Germans learned with the Blitzkrieg campaign that, hey, we can take these Stukas and these H B 111s load them with bombs, they can bomb an area, and then we can push in. So it's kind of like it's just like softening up an area with artillery. Yeah, it's, it's the no same different. concept just from the
1: air. Well, and um, even in today's world, air power is the is to make or break if you're if you're in warfare. Yeah, if you lose air superiority, then
0: you've And they, re- they really learned that during World War One because then the Allies had dominated air; they had domination over the airspace. Um And, you know, in 1917 going to 1918, and then it really became a big thing uh, in World War II, especially when the Allies were bombing, trying to bomb into Germany. Yeah. The P-47, I think, couldn't make it to and from Germany, but the P-51 could. And that's what changed the game when they introduced the P-51. Um, they could do that long range because, you know, it had its internal tank and it had its two external tanks it could make the long-haul flight to Germany and back to escort the B-17s. Prior to that they that's why they did the, that's why they started doing the nighttime raids. And then once we were able to gain air superiority, at least over France, then they started doing the daytime raids. They basically were going around the clock bombing. So air superiority is a tactic that's been around for almost 100 years, and it's still very much a thing on the modern battlefield. Oh, you, do, you did nothing if you didn't have air superiority. Yeah well that's i mean ground troops do nothing and that's why we that's why we were able to in 2003 going into 2004 we were, that's why we were able to defeat Saddam's forces because they didn't have air power mm-hmm. now granted there's a lot more that goes into that as far as like the willingness of their troops they really weren't willing to go up against a multinational coalition force on that magnitude
1: mm-hmm. no, no. not using not using thunder run tactics like they were using yeah
0: i mean you're talking about T72s T 54s, t 55s, T 62s, T 72s, T 80s going up against Abrams Leopards. I uh, can't remember what the British use. What their, is it the Chieftain? No. I, I don't know what the British, what their main battle tank no, is. No, the Chieftains are still ours, I think. I, I don't know. But anyway, it's something along the lines of the Leopard and the Abrams going up against, you know, everybody talks about fifth gen fighters. It was basically fifth gen tanks mm-hmm. going up against third gen. So, like the oh, technology, they
1: moving vastly, cost. vastly different. They were, they were still using the... hand cranks to rotate their turrets. Mm-hmm. Let's just put it like that. Yeah, there's no, there was no auto loading. There was nothing. now like T80s. That. They do have the, they do
0: have an automatic turret yeah, system. Perfect, but the T54, t- no, no, they do they have the auto the T80s. The T80s do. Yeah, now, but like the other tanks, like T-54s, the T54s and T72s, don't like it. Is not unless good. they're updated. No, but at the time they weren't retrofitted, yeah. like net, like they are now.
1: Wait. Yeah, now they're retrofitting everything.
0: Yeah, just to fight because yeah. Russia just—they don't have a—they don't have—they
1: don't have a choice. They're in the but, reserve uh, tanks now. So. Yeah, that's gonna be fun seeing
0: reserve tanks go up against Abrams. I think already right know how that's gonna go. Well, yeah. hell, even the shoulder-mounted javelin missiles were popping up like pop ten up, games. Yeah. So once you introduce, especially with some of the armament that the Abrams can have, some of their some of their um, some of their uh, rounds that they can shoot, at one twenty. But yeah, I think it's a 120. It might be a one I can't remember, but it's it's a big fucking round. But they had the ones the Sabo rounds. Yeah, the Sabo's the bunker everything? buster, yeah. like stuff like that it will just pop open like, pop it open like it's a damn can of soda. Well those rounds negated armor damage. That was the thing. Yeah, so, because prior to that, so like World War II for example, yeah. the T thirty-four, it's in it in an essence, wasn't if you look at it from compared to other tanks. But the armament just wasn't as good as if you compared a Panzer IV Panzer 4 or a to Panzer a T thirty four, even maybe Panzer three that had longer. But the the Panzer four versus the T thirty four in armament, the Panzer four beat them. But the thing that helped the Russians the most was the the angles of their armor. So they had sloped armor. The Germans caught on to that in 44 when they started building the Panther A's. Mm -hmm. They basically, their first Panther A prototypes, they took T-34s, took the hull, popped the turret off, put a, like a Panzer IV style turret on there, stayed with the 75 millimeter gun. And I think even some of the later models had the 88. And then they found that that was much more effective against um, anti tank rifles, um, anti tank artillery, stuff like that.
1: So they started was, moving towards that. It was slow to arm. Yeah, hey, it was perfect. perfect. Yeah. Uh, which, and that's why everyone, like, if you look at World War II, you know, tank tactics, how they would go tank to tank. Yeah. See, you would see Shermans going by, trying to get behind tanks. Yeah, to hit them in the fuel. To hit them in the fuel. Yeah, because arms. the Shermans didn't; their armament couldn't
0: touch a tire. Mm. It really couldn't.
1: Now the Shermans were outdated when we got them in World War II. By the time that we released... Really they weren't closer. outdated. They were outclassed. Okay.
0: Uh, no, because they went up against the Type 86s and the Type 87s in the Pacific and crushed, crushed them. them. Yeah. But the tanks the Japanese were using were off that World War one style, style,
1: style of... It kind war of looked side like... side turrets and top Yeah, it kind
0: of looked turrets. like... I can't remember what the French tank is called, but it kind of looked like that. It almost sounded like a bubble turret. Yeah, like yeah, yeah boxy yeah, yeah. Um, hull. But um, when you start going against um, some of the, like... Like the tigers, the tigers, the Panzer Fours, Panthers, uh, like stuff like that. Like you were Panthers starting, came around in like forty four, yeah. So forty four, late forty three,
1: yeah. Because the right. tiger
0: came out in forty three. Because I think they had tigers at Kursk, the Battle of Kursk. I think oh. they had a couple. Yes, because the, the 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 idea that the the Germans had for the Battle of Kursk wasn't terrible. They just got outnumbered. They had like basically they did like a like a arrowhead formation going in. And on the outside of the Arrowhead was a bunch of Panzer IVs.
1: Yeah.
0: A bunch. And then in the middle, they had their Tigers. And they basically tried to push through the Russian lines. And they were beating them, I think, for the first two days. Something like that.
1: Like two days, I think. Or I think be. the whole
0: battle might have been three days. Yeah. Well, I'm not, you know, before, before I say that, let me, let me go ahead and do some research on that. But anyway, going back to it, um, the, uh, <coughs> the Panzer IVs were basically kind of punch a hole in and the tigers go in and do what they did. Because tigers that had the massive eighty eight millimeter gun on them it negated any type of sloped armor the Russians had at that point. Because it was such a fast and it was just a fast destructive round. Well um, that
1: was the thing, velocity would penetrate armament. So any type of armor that was on any any T thirty fours at the time were didn't matter. But I say that. The sloped armor that was on the T34's would negate most of it. So the Battle of Kursk is more
0: than just a tank battle. So the actual Battle of Kursk lasted from July 5th, 1943 to August 23rd, 1943. Oh. because there was a, a whole there was like a battle. there was a whole land like takeaway tanks there was a whole infantry battle because mm-hmm. they're trying to retake the citadel there at Kursk. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, yeah, because then the the battle began with the launch of the German offensive operation Citadel.
1: That's yeah. right.
0: Which basically it was like they it was like a pen it was basically like a pincer maneuver that they were trying to do, but they had to break through the Russian they had to break through the tank lines, and that's where the the tank um tank battle came in. And then the Russians were able to push them back, cut the forces off, and it just became that's right. They tried to do the t- they tried to do the charge through the middle right there. Mm-hmm. Um, they basically tried to do the same thing the Russians did to the Germans at Stalingrad,
1: yeah,
0: um, and it just didn't work out because the Russians had the numbers. Um, and the Russians also had one of the, one in the top, I would say, top five of the one of the best strategists of, t- of the time, Field um, Marshal Zhukov.
1: Yeah, Zhukov was one was definitely a great strategist. Yeah, as much as I give the Russians credit on that, he understood. Yeah, he understood he, strategy. He understood strategy. To learn- Hey, if I if I hold out until this time or this time, or if I cut through supply lines like this, then it would then I could push from this direction. It, he was, I mean he he could he could manipulate a battlefield to where it played well, out. He was
0: brought him. in, so I know
1: Stalin brought him in
0: at the beginning phases of Stalingrad because I can't remember who the field marshal was before Zhukov. All I know is he, he did. But he um, he basically came in and revamped the entirety of the Russian tactics because the Germans liked the tactic of the German army at the time. As far as a global, not a global, but a if you look at a snapshot of the battlefield, they like to stay a decent distance away from the enemy because they like to use their air power. They mm-hmm. like to use their artillery power, and the Russians just they are like, now if we stay at a certain distance from them, they can use all of their air assets, their artillery assets, and basically demolish the army. So the Battle of Stalingrad not only was it urban combat, it was one of the first biggest urban combat operations um, in modern history, but at the same time, the Russians were able to get very close, so they couldn't use, the, you know, the Germans couldn't use the assets because they already bombed out the city, which was a mistake in the first place because it created all those types of little hidey holes for Russian snipers to sit in for from
1: that. Um, Yeah, operations, small unit tactics, stuff like that. That was, that was paramount in Stalingrad. That's mm -hmm. how, like, yeah, everyone, I'm sure everyone's seen the movies where, you know, they're doing the full frontal charge. Yeah. And and that was not the case. No, it was the case in some areas of Stalingrad, but it, it really was not the case. And they were more, and a lot of people have that, what is that enemy at Gates movie in their brain? it's kind there's of... There's much true, better but-
0: Stalingrad. There's So there's a movie called Stalingrad. Yeah, and that's phenomenal. It made 1993. Okay. It's from the German perspective. Um, I'm not going to ruin the ending of it for it, but I'm pretty sure that everybody can kind of draw their own conclusion from that. Um, and it basically... It is a movie literally just about how just terrible it was to be in Stalingrad for both sides.
1: It was definitely not a fun place to be. No. No, um, it was not. But... The the Soviets caught on to small unit tactics early in Stalingrad, which is why they eventually pushed the Germans out. Because the Germans still had the blitzkrieg mentality of going and slam slam through the defense, create an opening, and then filter out from there. Yeah, they had the divide and conquer mentality, which is a good mentality to have if you're facing a conventional force. But when you're facing small unit, uh, a small unit slash guerrilla tactic operation like Stalingrad was, you're going to find pockets of resistance in every door you knock down, which the Americans found out in Iraq. So essentially that's it's something you have to learn when it comes to inv- any type of invasion. They, people can be wrapped up in whatever clothes they want, but they, they'll learn how to, they'll learn how to fight.
0: Yep. Yeah. And that's, that's like, and that kind of hits a point of public opinion.
1: Public opinion. Definitely. Um, oh, it forecasts finance. it forecasts the war for you. Yeah. It forecasts whether you're going to win or not. Mm-hmm. If you don't have good public opinion of the war, or if you have, if you go into a war with any type of hesitancy, any type of hesitancy on, on the public front, like your people, which I mean, hey, we can look at our recent Afghanistan withdrawal. I mean, obviously, the reason we pulled out of there was simply because people thought, well, twenty years—that's too long, yeah—and Obviously, public opinion went against you. It's the same thing that happened during Vietnam for the Americans. I mean, yeah. there's no difference. When you have so such public backlash at home and you can't. happen to the Italians. It happened to the Italians. It happened to. It uh, didn't really
0: happen to the Germans because so people still fighting in the last days, but there was a growing concern of how the war was being ran. Yeah, absolutely. The public opinion for Germany, at least from World War II, was. Hitler, you know, the Fuhrer is still like the leader and we're going to listen and do what the says amongst the general population. Now, within the military itself, they had obviously their doubts, um, and that's been well documented. There's shows and movies and books written about basically the progression of the war and how the opinion, at least in the armed forces, changed, changed drastically.
1: From, I mean, from oh. 1938 to 1944.
0: Rommel saw it. was just the- Rommel yeah. saw it straight up, like, straight up in between 1942 until he was killed in 1944. Yeah. So he knew that the way that he was running the war was yeah. going to end in one way with Germany's defeat. So he tried to change that, um, and it, you know, eventually ended up costing him his life. So, um, like, that's, like, public opinion, and especially morale and the opinion of, you know, like, your, your armed forces had a massive
1: massive impact which is why the americans went from draftees to a full volunteer army yeah you didn't understand so like even that. prior so prior to so like
0: well in world war 2 it's different we got attacked yes so, in world war, the war II, though, the army was made up or the military itself was made up of a lot of draftees yeah korea yeah. a lot of draftees vietnam the beginning stages of vietnam not so much yeah. but post post 67 66, 67. 66 or 65, the the draft. Mm-hmm. 66 started boosting. 67 to 68 is when they had their highest influx. Or, I'm sorry, 67 to 69 is when they had their highest influx of drafties. Drafty, yeah. Draftees. And it got really big right before the Ted offensive. Well, that's 68. That's why, yeah. So, I mean, in that time, it went, the numbers, I think, doubled or tripled. So.
1: Well, we were losing. We were losing entire units in Vietnam. You know,
0: yeah. It, it, if you look at the actual, like, the statistics of it, the amount, like, you would send a platoon out on a patrol and you have three quarters of the platoon wiped out. Yeah. Could you imagine if that happened in, like, the modern day? Let's just, a, let's that just would be 20 a, years ago, an astronomical we were losing,
1: loss. Like, if we, if we went into Iraq during the Thunder Run of 2003 <laughs> and we were losing whole platoons, platoons companies. companies if we were losing that amount to that much, I mean, obviously we, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have continued our thunder run. We would have, we would have definitely moved into more conventional war, looked different tactics. Well, yeah, different tactics. But the thing is, is that that's you you can gauge your enemy based on their play, on their, which is why Iraq happened so quick. And we ended up in Baghdad in what two weeks, something like that. It it, it wasn't it wasn't long. We we run that so quick that most people couldn't even keep up on the news. Um, but the problem was, was we didn't, un- we knew their political opinion for Saddam was terrible. We knew no one liked Saddam yeah. because he was a dictator. Everyone pretty much was like, we want him out of there. So that's why morale was so low in the military is they were like, I don't want to fight Americans with Abrams and
0: yeah. all and air yeah.
1: superiority. And well, all not even and that, that, but
0: just even like the, it was just a massive multi-nation yeah. coalition force. So here's a statistic. So this is, let's see when this is because I know nowadays, at least looking back retrospectively, a lot of people believe that, you know, Iraq, the whole, the war in Iraq was a waste of time. Yeah. So if we want to put ourselves back, I can't remember how many years, 2006, put ourselves back to 2006, three years after we invaded. So, so in 17 years. Yeah. So in July of 2006, um, CBS and New York times conducted a poll, um, of saying like asking basically was the invasion of Iraq worth the American casualties and other costs. So 30% of 30% of the people polled said the invasion of Iraq was worth it. 63% said the war was not worth it. And 6% were unsure. 32% said they approved of the way George W. Bush was handling the situation. in Iraq. 62% approved or disapproved. So when you have a margin that's 10% or over 10% or higher over, you know, like basically the country being drawn between. Yeah. If you
1: have, if you have a 10% difference in between 50, 50 and it's 60, 30 or 60, 40 or 70, 30 or whatever you want to do it, then you're losing public opinion, which means you're going to get complete backlash at home. Yeah. And if you get backlash at home, you look at 19 If you look at the early 1970s, late 60s of American of the American public and their outcry here at home, and you but you don't understand like Vietnam veterans today will won't even acknowledge it because it's so they hate they hated that era of time so bad if that makes sense because they felt like they were they were abandoned so like which everyone hears you know the baby killer stories. That stuff was real. Like mm-hmm. the, we had people getting off of planes going home finally they'd been drafted. they didn't even want to fight been drafted and then they're getting they're getting home getting stuff thrown at them, being called baby killers. People ain't even looking at them right in the street when they're just going to get groceries stuff like that and that affects not just like doesn't affect just the soldier it affects the entire war effort in general which is why whenever we pulled out what, 65 or 75, yeah. 74, 75, um, we did it so badly. So here's a Gallup poll to kind of go back to the whole,
0: the the opinions like of the, of the public for war. So this says, in view of development since we entered f- the fighting in Vietnam, do you think the U.S. made a mistake sending troops um, to Vietnam, to fight in Vietnam? So this is basically asking people if, it was a mistake to do it. So in August of 1965, 61% of people said, no, it wasn't a mistake. In March of 66, 59% of people said it wasn't a mistake. May of 66, 49% of people said it wasn't a mistake. It kind of goes on and it levels out. But here's where really there's a massive change. So in April of 68, 40% of people said it wasn't a mistake. The lowest it got was in May of 1971 at 20 Eight percent of people said that it wasn't a mistake. So that means eighty-two oh uh, percent of people disagreed with the war. Eighty-two percent of the population that was,
1: um, which know, means one questioned. in five, one in five Americans agreed. Which means yeah. four out of five. Said, so oh, we so don't agree with it before
0: the Tet Offensive. Which, if you don't know the Tet Offensive. In <laughs> 1968, it was a massive, nationwide, South Vietnam attack. It included the site, it included Saigon, Denang, Quang, which Quang ended up lasting for three months. Um, basically, the Vietnamese, the Viet Cong, mobilized pretty much all of their forces to hit um, major American bases, small remote fire bases, basically trying to on a holiday. On a
1: holiday. That that's why it's called. Ted. Ted. yeah, uh, is—it's uh, like their it's their New Year, New Year, celebrate Christmas, yeah. But it, it was very sacred to them, which is why there was a te- and like there was, a, tet a, there, was a sign, there was a sign, there was a signed ceasefire. Yeah, there was a signed ceasefire <throat> saying that there was going to be no hostilities during. But the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong both planned the no attacks. Yeah, uh, it was like, it was like a three prong attack. Yeah, one on Da one on Trigon, the <laughs> and mm-hmm. then one on. Hey, look it up because I don't know
0: the exact. I know I know for three. Way we're, we're yeah, getting about way, which was the massive yes, like, that, that way good. and Kaisan were huge. But here's an indicator: so pre-Tet and post-Tet change of public opinion. Because mm-hmm. give you a little context: before Tet, people were you know really like you know the war is going pretty good, like you know winning hearts and minds stuff like that, and then after Tet they the public changed their opinion on it because they were like all these you know marines army sailors all these marines soldiers sailors airmen you know got killed during it. but if you look at the battlefield statistics of um the kill to death ratio for the Americans we won. we won at that point in time we had we had basically effectively destroyed the fighting force that was the Viet Cong yep. because in after sixty eight From 69, basically from post-Tet to 1973, when we left, like our fighting forces left, we were fighting straight North Vietnamese Army with a little bit of Viet Cong. But as far as like the Viet Cong threat that it was pre-Tet, it wasn't so much that way after. So, but here's a poll. It says it's an indicator for pre-Tet versus post-Tet change. So before Tet, um, 48% of people said that they approved of Johnson's handling of the job as president. After Tet, it went down to 36%. Um, Pre-Tet approves Johnson's handling of Vietnam, 39%. Post-Tet, 26%. Uh, Regards war in Vietnam as a mistake. Pre-Tet, 45%. Post-Tet, 49%. And then proportion classifying themselves as hawks, which I don't know what that means,
1: Uh, to be honest with you. Well, it was a 3 prong attack. I was right, but it wasn't. um, It was case-on. Kaesong, Hue, and Kaesong. Or, I'm sorry. You said Kaesong twice. Sa- Saigon, Kaesong, and Hue. Sorry. Yes. It was a three-prong, but they weren't. So
0: these Those t- were the bigger hubs of where they really wanted to do most. But they hit Da Nang as well. They, they did, hit, the hit Da Nang and They hit a lot of the smaller fire bases along the, um, um, in the Central Islands. They hit Pleiku. Um, a couple of the you know, other- well, there's
1: Cholong, uh, Gai Dien, uh, military district, and the capital district. Yep, Quang Tre, Quang Tre, thank you, sir. Quang Tre province, Quang Tre, and Chulan, Phan Tet, and there's another one somewhere. Either way, um, the whole point of it was was to destabilize the South Vietnamese government, which is why. So, the Viet Cong was tasked with literally hitting, bombing, just, it was, think of it as ta- the same tactics that um, Al-Qaeda used. They would run in with bombs. Yeah, they had and, the sappers. That was yeah. like,
0: kind of like the first time we'd ever seen, like, a,
1: um... They'd run in, they ran in into Saigon with bombs. They hit six targets. All right. They so hit the embassy. They hit the embassy. They hit, uh, let's see here. Uh, I had it pulled up again. They hit the embassy, the headquarters of the ARVN joint joint staff, Tan uh, Tan Nut Air Base, Tonsonut. Tonsonut. Thank you. I, I get suck at pronunciation, man. <laughs> Independence <laughs> yeah, Palace, um, the Navy headquarters, and Radio Saigon. Radio Saigon one they never got. Yes, but um, they tried. They did try. They tried, but I um, think like three dudes held the whole freaking tower. And same way in the, uh, the
0: embassy they yeah, got. Like, so they blew a hole in. They're able to get some guys in. They tried to take the, they had like the, like the ambassador's house thing there on the, within the walls. They tried to take that. Uh, some dudes who worked for the government with a 1911.
1: Yeah. 1911, like team blew, blew a hole in the eight foot high wall. Uh, their officers were all killed in the initial attack. That's why it failed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we only, I think we lost five US personnel the whole time in the embassy. So 19 um, to five. The Navy headquarters got hit pretty good. Yeah. Um, but they all still ended up dying. They didn't have anyone come out. Um, Radio Saigon wasn't hit, or it was hit, but it wasn't um, taken. It wasn't taken. And Then the other two were taken, yeah, Tannut air base. yeah,
0: Tanson was taken for a little while, and then yeah, Townnut
1: was taken. Um, they lost forty uh, ninth infantry lost forty eight soldiers in just like eight minutes the first yep, eight minutes of the attack. Um, okay, so I got some more st- statistics
0: pulled up here, so. Basically, this is kind of like the lessons of Vietnam, like kind of what we learned from it. Um, so, um, what we know that did not work is a great talking point, kind of if you want to look at like the strategic part of it. So, commitment of over 500,000 U.S. troops. Bad idea. So, yeah, commitment of five, over 500,000 troops. We released over 8 million tons of bombs on suspected enemy targets and a strategy of punishing North Vietnam from the air, while attempting to grind down enemy strength in the South via seeking out and destroying um, big units in the Central Highlands and around the DMZ and the Ho Chi Minh Trail.
1: Okay, Ho Chi Minh Trail bom- bombing
0: campaigns <laughs> we were bom- some of the most ineffective bombing campaigns bom- in human history. We crap out of that damn
1: trail, and they still were using it till the end. Yeah. Like they, they just kept either rebuilding bridges or just... Using different routes,
0: routes. Yep. Yeah, and they've learned routes. that they shouldn't drive during the day. Yeah, drive at night. Drive at night. And,
1: um, and then and night vision wasn't a thing back then, guys. Sorry, it was very, very baby steps. Thermal yeah. was still thermal was making its way there. That's where thermal imaging actually started getting used. Based. Yeah, because we had the. F- Scopes. uh vipers, and then I think some of the a planes were actually outfitted with uh, thermal imaging to try to see through the canopies so they could yeah. try to track troop movements. So you you do see a big mili- military te- technological boom during Vietnam, which is essentially what it was used for, because we were that that's the war where we literally moved from World War II tactics to guerrilla warfare. Yeah, that that was our first foray into understanding guerrilla warfare. And to be honest, to be honest, we kind of, if, if we could go back and redo everything, um, it's not something that we, that I really would try to redo because mm-hmm. we won, we won our fair share, but at the same time, we learned so much during the conflict that helped us out later in Iraq, Afghanistan, places like that. So a big thing also that really kind
0: of worked to the detriment um, from the strategic side, was um, Westmoreland's strategy of it. So rather than to rather than protect like the populace of South Vietnam, um, and you know try to do the put more effort Heart into the hearts and minds operations, he chose to kill. He chose to actually go after and hunt quote communist regulars rather than protect friendlies. No doubt in part uh, because he mistakenly assumed that by doing the former, he was accomplishing the latter. So basically his idea was if, if I kill enough communists, then I can protect the people. But with anybody who's ever been in war, um, like if, you're, if your whole mission is just to destroy the enemy and basically disregard the population, if there's a crossover point. Like you're going to go from
1: that... So then, you know, I mean, there's a reason that whenever you went into a village in either Iraq or Syria or whatever, you still have little kids running at you, waving at you. Yeah, because, I mean, yeah, you technically you were bombing out their villages, but at the same time, you were, we gave them tons of flipping money to help fix their fix their crap that we bombed. Yeah. So, I mean, they knew, and that was the difference, and that's honestly why it took twenty years there because we we were so that that's the dip That's the, that's the line that is so hard to draw in war is the hearts and minds mm-hmm. or wiping the enemy out. You can't have one or the, you can have one or the other, but it's a, it's a, it's a seesaw, man. Yeah. You're either too much into winning hearts and minds and you completely negate, negate the power of the enemy because you're, you're literally feeding the enemy money and yeah. they're just turning around and giving them and, giving all that money that you just gave them to. And that's essentially what we try to
0: do in Afghanistan. Yeah. Um, and kind of going on later was trying to basically, you know, post up, prop up their government and try to pay basically for the population, to, you know, have a good, sustainable life. And in turn, like a lot of that money got, you know, turned so- around and mm-hmm. used against us. Yeah. So, I mean, there's gotta, there's gotta be the, you know, that, that solid.
1: Well, you have to understand where, what it, understanding the people that you're fighting is another thing that you also have to understand in strategy. Yeah, it's not something that like if it's you don't, a whole lot
0: easier if you have a uniform if, force. Yeah,
1: you don't if you're fighting a non-conventional force like the Taliban or like Al Qaeda or whatever, you have to understand that they, there's no uniforms, and you, the money you're giving these guys could be given, you could be giving it to them, and you're literally funding your enemies, mm-hmm. and that that. Line that we did because we went into Afghanistan and Iraq with the same mentality that we did post Vietnam. Yeah, because we saw what we screwed up in Vietnam—not winning hearts and minds, literally treating the populace like dirt as we trampled over them with bombs—and we basically did the we tried to do we basically tried the to do the complete opposite. opposite. Yeah. And you can't have a yin; it's a yin and yang force. It's not something that you can have both of. You
0: can't be full throttle on one area yeah. and pump, pump the brakes in the other.
1: No, because if you do, then you're you're either going to turn the populace against you and lose not just public opinion, but also um, international, international opinion. Um, or you can just fund your enemies, mm-hmm. which is essentially what ended up happening in some cases. Yeah, And that the problem with modern strategy is the fact that if you, it's so hard to balance that out to understand that, yeah, I could be funding my enemies, but like eventually we started tracking our money. That's how we started negating it. We started tracking the money to figure out where it went. Mm -hmm. And so we'd be giving out, you know, either if we blew up a bridge, we'd be like, all right, here's the money to fix the bridge. And if that bridge never got fixed, and that bridge never, exactly.
0: Yeah. I knew that was like a big
1: thing. It was a really
0: big thing up in uh, Northern Afghanistan with the whole projects from basically 2007 to 2012, was trying to bring the infrastructure that they had in, Jalalabad and um, Kabul up to like the northern Afghan, up to northern Afghanistan up in the Hindu Kush to try to be able to get them to modernize because that was such a comparatively speaking to the rest of the country if you look it's at a from third a, world yeah if you look at it from a very Western outlook if you compare it to like Kandar, Helmand the cities themselves mm-hmm. Jalalabad, Kabul you compare those to what Kunar province was, and the River Valley, and all of that. It was very like you take like something that could be like you know nineteen nineties, early two thousands to you know seventeen hundred.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you got to think these people have been. If anyone doesn't know anything about Afghanistan's history, it's very very colored. It it is the most it is filled with war. Filled with war, history out of any country I've ever seen. Yeah. There was there's not been any because everyone's wanted Afghanistan because it's it's the gateway from Asia into Europe. That's literally why everyone's like, well, it's got a mountain pass. We can live like as far back as I'll, I'll just go as far back as the first Afghanistan war with the Brits. All right. Whenever, yeah. um, there, um, there's Muhammad, um, was deposed and they tried. So what ended up happening in that war was they had, um, uh, the ruler of Afghanistan, I'm pretty sure it's Durst Mohammed, I think that's right. Um but he he was very, you know, friendly with the Brits while the Russians were sending emissaries to him. And so Britain was so afraid of losing control of Afghanistan to the um, to the Soviet or not the Soviets at the time, the Tsars at the time, um, that he depo- they deposed um Muhammad and propped up their own little proxy, proxy government, which completely turned public opinion against them in Afghanistan. Cause it used to be, they were, they were loved. You know, yeah. Everyone liked the Brits. Um, well, they didn't like that too much. So what ended up happening was, was in, in Jalalabad, um, there was a, a British emissary's house in Jalalabad and a riot had erupted. And rather than the garrison that was sitting in Jalalabad um, come to their aid, Mm -hmm. they just kind of were like, well, it'll fizzle out. Well, it didn't. It ended up spreading. So it's on you. It didn't fizzle out. Oh no. And it gets even better. So they, the emissary was killed along with his group of 12 men, I think. Mm -hmm. And then that that riot turned so hostile and so big that they attacked the garrison and wiped everyone except one person out. It's the only one in history that has ever had the lone rider coming back from. So a doctor, the only reason that anyone really knows the context of the battle was a doctor rode 12 miles to the next garrison. And the horse died by the time it got there. And the doctor had so many lacerations and cuts on him that they didn't know if he was going to make it. But he pulled through, and they literally destroyed the entire garrison. There was nothing left of him. And that—that's the will of the Afghanistan people. It's so strong and so crazy. we should learned We should learn at least from the Soviets. Yeah. That the Soviets used brutal tactics. Hey, but. Yeah, I mean the Soviets used brutal tactics, which obviously didn't work out for them. Didn't work out for them. Everyone knows of the uh, Mujahideen in the 1980s,
0: then which ended up being the modern day modern Taliban. Day,
1: so modern day Taliban. Um, but Afghanistan was just a war that we probably, if we would have at least known recent military history. Yeah, within the last 40, 50 years. We probably would have went into war a little bit different. But, um, anyways, do you want to take a quick break? Yeah, I think
0: that's a perfect time to take a break. We will be back.
1: Hey, guys. Welcome back to Outlaws Podcast. Thanks for tuning back in and staying with us. So, we've covered, you know, recent history We'll go more into, I'm not going to say ancient history because it wasn't even 100 years ago. But we're, we're, gonna go we're going to go into back back the 1940s. 1940s, where warfare was warfare and strategy. And you could definitely see how strategists from both sides keyed up on how to maneuver men. So we're actually going to go into a blunder that the Allies ended, ended up doing Operation Market Garden. So, Market Garden was devised by a Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery, and it was executed by almost forty-two thousand troops. All right, and three—it was Polish, English, American, and Polish airborne troops, and three division, three divisions on the ground: thirtieth, first, and I cannot remember the other one. But <clears throat> it was highly ambitious, and it failed for many reasons. Obviously, mainly because of lack of Lack of intel, intelligence gathering, plus logistics, logistics, and supply lines. So, what ended up happening was there was nine bridges that Bernard or General Montgomery wanted to capture, and to be honest, it was a great plan, but. Poor execution. Poor. It was poor execution. It was a good plan, but it was just too much. Yeah, it was poor he execution off too much than he could. Choose. It was poor execution on the leadership side, on the higher echelon leadership side. So what ended up happening was they airdropped troops to these nine bridges, and the whole trick was was they were going to the airborne troops were going to secure the bridges so that way the tanks could come in and you know support them. Well, they weren't counting on two SS divisions and a whole, I think a whole tank division that was there because of lack of intel. So what ended up happening was, was the airborne troops were dropped in. They took the bridges, but then they had to hold them. Well, they held eight out of the nine, which is good statistics if you think about it. But at the same time, by the time most of the by the time the ground troops got to them, they were already down to quarter strength half the time. I think after bridge five, it was they were holding on by the skin of their teeth. But bridge nine completely failed. So Battle of Arnheim, look it up. Great great show of what not to do when it, when stretching your forces too far. Because most of I think a whole division was in Arnheim and we dropped I can't remember exactly. Exactly. How- so,
0: it was a large operation, airborne operation in history, delivering over 34,600 men from the 101st, 82nd, 1st Airborne Divisions and a Polish Brigade. So, just an airborne troops,
1: 34,600 men. But the problem with airborne operations is you lose supply lines. Because back then, they weren't dropping airborne supplies. And when they did they drop them two clicks off. They didn't have an accurate way to drop supplies and munitions to these troops, which we ended up actually feeding half of the German army because we kept dropping them food supplies, which was great. Um, but um, it consisted of two parts. Uh, obviously, the, the 30th Corps aimed at securing bridges captured by the airborne troops. Um, <clears throat> weather conditions and heavy German opposition, opposition was the key factors for it failing, but really the key, key factor was intelligence. Because if they would have done the same intelligence gathering, like, we'll give you a case in point on how to do a great airborne operation, which was Operation Overlord. Case in point. I don't
0: know if that's would say was a great
1: <laughs> well, airborne operation. I mean, because like, the scattering of the troops, the DZ fuck-ups. Like- yeah, but at the same time, we we had stretched the German forces so thin that we yeah like we could we could use those small unit tactics that we used to secure like St. Mary Galides, um Carantan, um places like that with the airborne troops because by the time we we were landing on D Day, like we did have scattered forces, but what forces we did have in key roles, like the Hundred and First taking out um Everyone's heard of the Band of Brothers, famous, where they went and took out that whole battery of four um, 88s. So, remember earlier when you said there were two SS divisions there?
0: Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so, it was Army Group B uh, commanded by... So, all right. The majority of the Germanian station on um, west of the Rhine were under the responsibility of Oberst. Ober. Felschaber West, commanded, by the time, commanded at the time by General Field Marshal Gerd von Rundstedt. Um, so, Army Group B, which was German Armed Forces Command, or Armed Forces Group Netherlands. So, it had the 7th Army. So, had 1st SS Panzer Division, Leibstandarte SS Adolf Hitler. 12th SS, Hitler Junge, which is the Hitler Youth SS mm-hmm. Division. Uh... It goes on, just so many, 183rd Volks Division, 49th Infantry division Ah, uh, where I was. Made And this then real.
1: there was two divisions in Arnheim. I'm sorry. In or- yeah, in Arnhem. Then they had,
0: uh, let's see, let's see, 9th SS Panzer Grenadier Division, Hoennstaufen, commanded by SS Strandon Führer, uh, Walter Hartz. Then there was 10th SS Panzer Division, Frunzberg. Uh... Six Parachute Regiment, which was the false, their airborne operation, or their airborne troops, um, Kampfgruppe Group von Teutah, which was a Commp are basically a conglomeration of Wehrmacht and SS. Um,
1: but yeah, anyways, there was a, there was a lot of there was a lot of Germans in that area. The whole point was was in order for Operation Overlord to have as much success as it did, it needed Operation Fortitude. So what Operation Fortitude was was literal mock-ups and blow-ups of entire army divisions, tank divisions, slated to hit north northern France, not, not the southern peninsula like we did. So majority of their troops had been pulled. What? Just the, the amount...
0: I didn't really realize at the time, but the, the amount of German forces in the area during Operation Market Garden is astonishing. Three SS divisions, a bunch of conf groups, which are made up of basically soldiers who kind of got separated from their units, so their units were destroyed as basically like a mismatch because that happened a lot, especially in 44 going into 45. Just the just the sheer amount of German Firepower, had flak batteries, artillery batteries, all these things. There, it's just it's astonishing that the Allied forces weren't completely wiped out. The, the sheer amount of force the Germans had at Market Garden, and you know, overlord the Bulge, and pretty much every massive uh, operation. So, but continue, continue.
1: I'm sorry. Well, and one thing I will give Montgomery, it was bold. They weren't expecting it, especially after Normandy. They weren't fully expecting that amount. They weren't expect they, they weren't expecting something that far. In. Yeah. No, they they obviously knew of an invasion because if if you look at the history, they did intercept uh, they intercepted communications and everything on you know hey we're they're mounting for this invasion. Yeah. But they didn't know the scope of it. Yeah. Which is why we pushed eight of, the, eight of the nine bridges in because. And then Ordnab happened. And then them happened. Arnhem was definitely one of those that did not go down in history for the good of the Allied forces. I can promise I you, you that. Um, which eventually ended up doing the Battle of, Battle of the Bulge. Yeah, you had the Battle of the Bulge, you had the ba- Battle of the Ruhr Pocket. Rear
0: pocket, yeah. Which Ruhr Pocket happened pretty much, it coincided timeline-wise with the Battle of the Bulge, and a lot of people forget, forget about the Ruhr Pocket, but... If we had, if the American or the Allied forces had lost their Pocket, the Battle of the Bulge would not have been a success. It could have still been a success, but it wouldn't have been That's
1: great of a big success. That's yes. Success. It would have prolonged the war probably even more. Which if, if you look into the history of the Battle of the Bulge, is where we wiped out majority of Germans' tank force. Yep. That's that's where that that's that's how we got to push so far in so quickly. Yeah, because, because I think after the bulge we crossed the Rhine and we, we hit Aachen. The- yep. And after that, I mean it, it was, was just pretty Mad month. Dash. It was-, it was the Mad Dash to Berlin. Same so yeah. thing the Soviets were doing on the Yeah,
0: Eastern once I think the Soviets, once they took once they after Kurd not Kursk, but after Kharkov the second battle of Kharkov and Ukraine, then the Korsan pocket once they crossed over the Dnepr River, they couldn't be stopped. Yeah. Which, and then the, the whole battle of low Heights, and I mean the story—some of the stories that have come out of that are just insane. I can't remember what book. I think it might be in *Blood Red*. Or I think it might be *Blood Red Snow* or *In Deadly Combat*, which are both autobiographies written by German soldiers who survived the Eastern Front. But one of them, I think it was 40, forty-five. I think they were just outside of Germany but they were in like a defensive position and they had MG42s lined up online and the Russians just kept coming they they were killing russians like wholesale but the russians kept coming to the point where they couldn't change their barrels fast enough and they were literally melting barrels because the russians just wouldn't stop coming i mean they were throwing a division basically the russians were throwing multiple divisions at a think at, like, a, not a division-side size, but a brigade,
1: maybe a brigade-size element, and just kept going and going and going. Well, and that's how you see the difference of strategies, too. Like, so in Eastern Front strategies, you could definitely tell that they were more men-minded. That they, makes sense. they really didn't give a shit. <laughs> oh, and then you look at the Russian side, and by the end of, the, by the end of those wars of 44, 45, Once they pushed past Russia and into Germany, yep. um, you could definitely tell that they had changed tactics to full, just blitz strategy to where they just throw men at They yep. just throw men at positions. They wouldn't yep. care. And when you get, and I mean, men would do it free of charge. They, they they wanted to do it. They didn't. Yeah. By then, once they got to the eastern states, yeah. like Finland, by then and they Estonia. Their morale had been raised because they weren't fighting their motherland. That's why. Yeah. They were pushed into the fatherland. Yeah.
0: Once they hit Poland, it was pretty much done. Yeah. But Um, um, Because then you had the whole resistance, the Polish resistance. Oh, and you had uh, the
1: Polish SS group.
0: Uh, Yeah, I mean, there were SS groups made of every captured, pretty much every, I mean, you had the Ukrainian SS, you had the Belarusian SS, you had the Fin SS, the Estonian SS. They didn't have a Romanian SS, I don't think. But they had SS divi- like divisions made up. Hell, they even had the um, Turks, maybe? They were Fezzes. I can't remember what SS division it was. But they were Muslim. Croatians. They were Croatian. They had a whole Cro- Muslim Saints. SS division. Well, I mean, you got to think though. that's how they... But here's the thing. If you look at the mentality of it, um, at the time, like a lot of those countries, they didn't want it, they didn't want communism, so yeah, they basically just picked right, the lesser pick Two evils.
1: evils, which they're both. I mean, obviously, today, if you don't think communism is evil, you're, you're out of your mind. Um, uh, that's why I, I, it surprises me to this day that it's even there's even communist groups in the United States. How
0: uh, oh, communism is still like even like irrelevant?
1: I, I don't understand. Like, do you not? Do you not even know recent history, at least fifty years back? Like what do you think happened when North Vietnam took over all of Vietnam? Do you really think it was sunshine rainbows? Look at your yeah, look at your clothes and see if they're made in either China or Vietnam. There's a reason, because child labor is a thing in those countries. Yep. Like gonna you be way off in this <laughs> way about of Oh yeah, never mind. Let's just flip it on back. It's it's back, back on. To, Back to strategy. Sorry, I was going off on a tangent. But even then,
0: so like going more kind of staying on the western or the eastern front side. Um so obviously one of the greatest military blunders in the past eighty years was the you know the invasion of Russia at Operation Bavarossa. Oh
1: Operation Bavarossa was <sighs> definitely It was
0: going like here's the thing though. It went great. It was going really, really well until winter until winter. And I think forty two. 42. two? Forty two. Um. So, the drive, in Moscow, drive to Moscow was going really well. Hell, the well, Battle of Stalingrad was going well. But here's the thing. It's a deception operation that a whole lot of people don't realize. They would pull their troops back. They would keep pulling them back. Yeah. Waiting for but Stalin monitoring. also put on a frequency that he knew the Germans were monitoring. Or his, his intelligence people knew they were monitoring. Basically saying the Russian forces were defeated. They're pulling out of Stalingrad. Which sucked the Germans in. And then once the Germans got sucked into the Stalingrad, they just... And yeah. then it turned into the whole thing. And then the whole pincer operation basically surrounded the entirety of the 6th Army, um, which they had their lines, their out lines, um, or outside cordon, uh, manned by Romanians, Hungarians, Turks, and a couple of their foreign, um, what they would consider their foreign fighting forces. And then it basically just collapsed.
1: Well... You can go, like, in, anytime anyone has invaded Russia, if they even, they can go back to Napoleon. Yeah, it never works out. Uh, it's not that it, it doesn't work out because and that, that's what a lot of... It stress. all just boils down to logistical operations. Yeah, logistical operations is all, because they always get too far pushed in too quickly.
0: Like, you know that, that saying that supply says, bullets don't fly without supply? As cheesy and as corny as that sounds, it is...
1: It's true. It's pretty legit. Like you know, I mean, yeah. If you don't have a successive, successive supply line to your troops, yeah, you know, that's what
0: Blitzkrieg tactics not Like it works, but it didn't because the tanks would push so far forward, they would get to where they basically ran out of fuel, waited for everybody else to, to come to up, up. fill up, and then basically rinse and repeat.
1: And it's great if your if your supply lines can keep up. Yes, and like that—that that was the problem. So that was the, the problem with Napoleon whenever he invaded Russia. And that was the problem with the Germans whenever they invaded Russia. They both didn't take they did not into take the account cons- the consideration the, the con- and the account of gas, bullets, food. Yep. That was like, yeah, Napoleon didn't have gas, but they still had horses. All yep. right, They needed time for their horses to recoup. Yep. He did not take that into account one bit. He kept driving his troops further and further and further into Russia. Because he was trying to get... To Moscow, yep. which if you think about it, it's not that far into Russia. During that time, it's only, what, 200 miles, maybe? Yeah. 180, 200, somewhere in there. But they were – the Russians would just keep dropping their lines back, especially during Napoleon's time. And destroying they were destroying everything in in success, the Yeah, they would destroy everything in succession along the way. Scorched earth all the way back to Moscow, and Moscow was literally the whole the line. Same yep. thing with the Germans. Yeah. Yep. It's no different. Yeah. They would – just drive back until suck them in until they knew that their supply lines were so far removed. Yeah,
0: yeah. But even then, like, we can sit there and say that, but at the time, like, Germany was kicking Russia's ass. Yeah, I man, mean, kicking them up and down.
1: But you got to think the Russians wanted them to do that. That was the that's what a lot of people in stratagems don't understand. Like, Joseph Stalin was an excellent strategy, he's a terrible guy. Excellent strategist. all right, Because he understood that if he could stretch a a force out so thin and along so many lines, Mm -hmm. like he knew once Germany pushed into the west, he was fighting on two fronts. Because he still hadn't finished the Battle of Berlin. They were were still doing air raids. And so they were still pushing past – they were still pushing France out and doing air raids once they established – France is their conglomerate, I guess. And so whenever you're splitting your forces in two like that, they know that there's not going to be enough logistical logistical support if they can get them stretched out. And if you think of it at the time, there was
0: really, it was kind of almost a three-front. Because you had Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Africa. So, well, Africa was... And even after Africa didn't really heat up to forty
1: three. Forty three was one. 43. Like, About Tunisia and stuff like that. Yeah, and then once we once the
0: Germans got pushed out of uh, Africa, then Italy happened. Yeah, they lost Italy. Yeah. Well, the people people turned on uh, Mussolini. Mussolini. Yeah,
1: So Which, <laughs> hearts and minds, people. Yeah, hearts and minds. Um, but that was the that was the thing that that was the thing the Germans the Germans gonna, uh, freaking hearts and minds operations. Well, the and Ruppath- propaganda video, yeah, propaganda, propaganda mission. And the Russians did the do. same
0: thing. There were so many, it's very, people get it either misconstrued or they forget about it. But a lot of the people, once the Germans were uh, basically retreating from Russia, a lot of the people in those countries, like Ukraine, Belarus, um, Estonia, Poland, um, a lot of those places, Finland especially, a lot of those places that were, Welcoming to the Germans whenever they got pushed back, they were fleeing with the Germans because they did not want Conrad Wave like, to come in at all. Because they knew if they, if the Russians found out that X amount of people, they, you know, they helped the Germans during the war, then it was basically a death sentence. But my great grandmother is a perfect example of that. When the Germans left Czechoslovakia in 1945. She fled, because both her brothers were in the um, German military. Um, they fled. She met my grandfather in France, or my great-grandfather in France. But, like, she knew, she grew up knowing that communism was bad, and at the time, that they were taught that fascism was perfect. Like, her parents both said that they, her, I think her parents committed suicide, but they said that they didn't want to live in a world without fascism, so... I mean, definitely didn't want to live in a world of communism so she fled and met my great grandfather and then came in, came to America after my grandfather was born in Munich so like there that was just that
1: was the public opinion that communism that ain't it son well even in today's world like communism it's still communism is like the end, end all day. be all of you' do yeah um, but I mean obviously with public opinion and lack of history, Proper history, yeah. Um, you learn that there's still plenty of communist groups in America today. So, anyways, off of communism, back on to yeah, strategies, we stratagems, hammering on communism. Yeah, well, we don't like communism, needless to say. Yeah, you can't tell. We don't like communism, we're anti communists over here. Um, but anywho, um, back to you Know great strategies that were used. We'll, we'll just use World War II as an example, yeah. We'll go, we'll, we'll stop proper on the bad things, the bad operations, we'll go more, we'll the, go in more good operations. So, whenever you textbook island hopping was never a thing until the 40s, yeah, low island, hopping yeah. campaigns. island hopping campaigns was not a thing until World War II, yeah. So, yeah. whenever you know, Japan attacked. America, Pearl Harbor. They opened up a whole can of worms that they couldn't close.
0: <laughs> then the Battle of Midway. They're like, "Oh, we can destroy the Pacific Fleet."
1: Well, another great, another great deception tactic that. Oh uh, yeah, that Nimitz used was he he was feeding the the Japanese analysts bad intel. Yep. Um, I can't remember what his name was, but he was a great intelligence officer. The head <sighs> yeah, naval yeah. intelligence officer during. During, not just during Pearl Harbor, but also... He was the one that warned them that Pearl Harbor was going to yeah. happen. Um, but I cannot remember what his name is. But anywho, they'd cracked the Japanese Code. cipher. Yeah. and Well, some of it. They hadn't cracked all of it. But they could intercept certain messages. And they were getting a reoccurring theme, theme, which was, what was it? V something. <sighs> I can't remember what the... Codename the Japanese used, but they... But Admiral Yamamoto, his brainchild was the Battle Midway. And his entire operation there was to destroy all of... the What was remaining of the Pacific. What was remaining of the Pacific, Fleet, and also to create a stepping stone for Japan to attack homeland United States. Yeah. I.e. California, Washington, Oregon. Oregon, all those western state coasts. And at the time, we were severely underpowered. Like as much as we can be patriotic, we we don't understand how shorthanded we were until you really start looking at the stats on how much we did lose. Yeah. But if we, we didn't lose any
0: carriers, though,
1: no, we. we if we had lost, the, if we would lost the carrier groups, we would have definitely been crushed. Mm-hmm. We would have had no way to bounce back. But also, they they didn't destabilize our fuel or oil. Yeah. Um, deposit. Which is really
0: that was kind of one of their main goals was to
1: try to destroy as much specifically as possible and try to destroy. Well, uh, rather than rather rivers. than having Pearl Harbor down for two to three years, we got it back up and running in six months. Yeah, because the entire country came together. I was like, nah, well, like that. not just that they didn't hit their key targets that they want. Like they they hit Hickam. Yeah, and they hit battleship. Roy. Yeah. But outside of that, the sec the. The third and fourth waves that were supposed to hit were called off, yeah, because they would lost surprise advantage. Yep, and which was smart for the admiral. I can't remember who the admiral in charge of the carrier group was, but he understood that they'd already lost the initiative. Yeah, and that the carrier groups that were actually stationed off of Pearl Harbor were actually we're kind of, were, kind of, they were moving. They were, they were Well, they were sending in air air support. So, but even then, like a lot of people forget, just like going back to like how we were severely,
0: like not really outnumbered, but outclassed. We were crippled. Um, at, well, at the Battle of Midway, even then, our planes at the time really were.
1: Well, we had not P fifty one Warthogs. No, we had the P forty Warhawks. Forty Warhawks. That's And then. I think we had P-40 Dauntlesses. Warthogs. Dauntlesses. Where, where yeah. Were the Dauntlesses? Well, yeah. that, the dive bombing and the dive bombing you know, campaigns was the Dauntless. The torpedoes was. <laughs> Dauntless could go go with both. Uh, Bombs guess, or... Yeah, they can. But the Dauntless is more of like a is a dive bomber.
0: Yeah, I mean it, it,
1: that's that that was what it was designed for. Yeah. I think but... we might have
0: been the Wildcat at the time.
1: Maybe. The, yeah, that's right. The Wildcat. Yeah, but that was more like the the yeah. interceptor type aircraft. But anyway, anyways, and... off of our nerding out on actual stuff that was there the the inv- the invasion of Midway that. The Japanese undertook they under they hit it with like four carriers, I think. I think it was four carriers. They yeah. lost three
0: of the i I'm gonna pull up some stats on that one because yeah. I think, I like well, I, think
1: I think. like it. But what ended up happening was they did a they were trying to do a a rinse and repeat of Pearl Harbor. Yeah. So they were trying to hit us with another surprise attack at uh, midway. Well we'd already intercepted that they were that they were coming. So we had stationed in our entire carrier groups, everything we could muster right off the coast, like 300, 200 miles off the coast of Midway. And we started sending attack groups to where we knew where the car- their carrier groups were. All so right. So we had aerial surveillance over
0: them. Here's the strength. So the U.S. was definitely kind of outnumbered on this one. So the U.S. had three fleet carriers, seven heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, 15 destroyers, 233 carrier-based aircraft, 127 land-based aircraft, 16 submarines. Whereas uh, the Japanese had one, they had the first carrier strike force. So four carriers, two That's battleships, right. two heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, 12 destroyers, 248 carrier-based aircraft, 16 float planes, uh, 13 submarines. The their support force for their invasion: that four heavy cruisers, two destroyers, 12 float planes. Um, And then the casualties and losses: one one of our carriers was sunk, one destroyer was sunk, Yorktown was sunk. 150 aircraft destroyed, 307 killed. Um, And then the Japanese lost four carriers: one heavy cruiser sunk, one heavy cruiser damaged, two destroyers. 248 aircraft destroyed, 3,057 killed, 37 captured.
1: Well, the thing is, behind it was we were drawn in their carriers. That's what we wanted. We We knew it was a. It was literally a, a run for the carriers to see who could take out air superiority in the Pacific. Yep. So we knew if we could draw in their carriers, we could literally level the playing field on uh, sea power, because we. I think we'd only had we had the Enterprise, the Yorktown, which were sister ships, yep. and then we had uh, what was Halsey's. Yeah. Halsey's. I cannot remember this Halsey went down with shingles before this battle. I think it was gonna be in the Hornet. It was the Hornet, that's what that's right. It was the Hornet. The Yorktown and the Enterprise were our three. And um We lost the Yorktown. They eventually made, you know, the Yorktown two, which is what's sitting in Charleston Bay right now. Yep. Um after this. Yeah, they rebuilt it like right after. Well, cause what ended up happening was was the Yorktown, during the Battle of Guadalcanal, the Yorktown took a bombing, took a dive bombing run, and ended up getting a hole so big in her deck that it was in dry dock like three weeks before the Battle of Midway. Yep. And Nimitz literally came in and said, I need this ship ready in like 48 hours. So I think they were patching it with plywood. I think they patched, patched the, the deck holes with plywood, which eventually, it led to the reason why it was sunk, because it wasn't structurally sound. Because what ended up taking it out was, I think, a torpedo run that that the Akagi had sent. So the main carriers there, I think, on the Japanese side was the Akagi. Um, hold on. I had it pulled up. Well, the thing was, they scuttled scuttled the New York Times. Yeah, they scuttled it because it was not seaworthy after the torpedo attack. Um, They had no choice, just like they scuttled the Akagi. Because the Japanese had – so what ended up screwing the Japanese up was whenever they figured out that their surprise attack failed, they moved in from an offensive posture, you know, dive bombers and – Dive bombers and fighter planes to they had to retrofit their bombers for uh, torpedoes. Yeah. So what ended up happening was the, the Admiral that gave the order to to change everything over, he didn't understand they were about to receive attacks of their own. And they had repelled I think they were they had repelled the first wave of bombers we'd sent them. Yeah, yeah. You know we use B-17s. Mm-hmm. Like
0: Take, they took off from Midway. and bombed uh,
1: wasn't the Akagi, but I can't remember which aircraft carrier it was. But I'll tell you here in a second. Let's see here. Uh, do, do, do. Akagi, the Kaga, the Soryu, and the the Soru and the and the Hiru was the four. Everyone knows of the Akagi because of the movie. But the die, the Dauntless dive bombers were the big key. To, yeah, they, uh, those had the
0: Devastators and they had the Avengers. Yep. Yeah. The Devastators the, were the torpedo. torpedo.
1: Yeah. I knew that the Dauntless was more of a striker uh, dive. God, oh, Dauntless is such a beautiful aircraft. <laughs> it's just such a beautiful aircraft. But... um Needless to say, we ended up really leveling the playing field, which led to the island hopping campaigns, which was the original part of where we were going. So we'd already had the Battle of Guadalcanal. Yeah, by then forty-two. Yeah, early 42. forty-two. And so the the head the head shed, Nimitz and Spruance, Spruitts. That's right.
0: It was Nimitz, Spruits, uh Fletcher, and
1: Halsey. They devised what is known today as why the Marines are so iconic and what they're known for. Island hopping. Mm-hmm. So their island hopping campaigns was to get air bases that were close to Japan. So they yeah. would hop on islands.
0: Basically kind of like, it was almost like a trail.
1: Yeah. Leading
0: mm-hmm. to Okinawa.
1: From Guadalcanal all the way to Okinawa, you, you, see, you can see an entire campaign, you know, Iwo Jima, everyone knows of that one. Um, of just little jump campaigns to get to the Japanese mainland which had never been invaded mind you so this is where you know you weren't in a in a case in point of you're not going to win hearts and minds is the Japanese is the Japanese front of World War II. Yeah, there was no way you could you could get there mind cuz they were in war and a warrior mentality that if you didn't die in combat, you committed suicide. Yeah. And that, and emperor was God. Yep. And then, and the emperor was the god. Think of it as like trying to invade North Korea today. It It's not, you're, you're not going to win their hearts and month because they're so brainwashed Yep, because of how, how they've been raised and nurtured for the past, I don't know, 60 years.
0: So midway happened in 42. Yep. It was like and months later, spanning from August 42 to February, 43 to two, Countries would it be enrolled in the Guadalcanal campaign, and the British Solomon Islands? Yep, the Solomon Island
1: campaigns. Uh,
0: I'm trying to actually pull up a list of all of them because there was
1: there was a hell of a lot. There
0: was a whole lot because uh, then you had Peleliu. Let's See, let's see here. Jeez, I just want to like a timeline. So they have the Solomon's, New Guinea, Tarawa, Saipan, Philippines, Guam, Lady Gulf,
1: which was another big. Um, naval. Well, the Battle of the Coral Sea was yeah. a big one. Then, um, then the Battle Midway. Yeah, oh, man. and they had Iwo Jima, Okinawa,
0: Palau. I mean, there's just there's a lot going on at the time, and and what Well I think I'm pretty sure I just butchered the shit out of
1: that name. Oh, Tarawa, yeah, Tarawa in the Gilbert Islands. That was a oh, big battle. The Bonin Islands, Mary, Marianne Islands, the. Palau Islands, Caroline Islands, Marshall Islands—was um, the big one. And then once we got to Okinawa after the Bumi Islands was the was where we, when we started dropping nukes for the first time in all of world history. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, not a not a great time for us, I guess. But um, during, I mean, the New Guinea and the Dutch East Indies, the Philippine island hopping campaigns. Um. Yeah. The Mariana Islands was the one that everyone kind of... That was Guam, you know, Saipan. And then Manila. the Bonin Island was Iwo Jima, the famous Battle of Iwo Jima. Yep. Um, there was just a, there was so much going on in the Pacific at one time. Because then you can go into the British and Burlington, well, Singapore. That's why if you look at... Malaysia. If you look at the mid Vietnam, why the Battle of Midway was so impactful on American American strategy in the wet, in the Pacific. In the Pacific. It we basically is, opened the door for them to basically you can go from island to island. And, because we took out their air power. There was no way they could strip the remaining amount of carriers out to... Yeah, because then uh, they
0: just started relying on land-based aircraft. And if you take out the airfield, then you're a land-based aircraft. Which is already. why we started
1: taking out aircraft. Yeah. Uh, Airfields. Air which, that's what Taro, Taro was, Iwo Jima was, Wake Island was... Guadalcanal. Guadalcanal. Guam. Uh, Pelalu. Yeah. Pelu had one.
0: Pelalu was rough fighting, too. I mean, if you he ever did. want to see, like, a modern-day rendition of it, look at the series The Pacific. They have a whole couple episodes on Pelalu, I it was just rough. Miserable
1: rough. But... Essentially, one like island hopping campaigns had never been a thing because we'd never fought in that side of the world before. Like, we had, you know, I think the Philippines a little bit, Hong Kong, Hong Kong, yeah, yeah but we never done anything on that, never, on that scale where we had to take so we had no support from China because at the time China was embroiled in a civil war, yeah. which so China half of China was actually controlled by the Japanese, yeah. which is why, if anyone has ever heard Shanghai. of Shanghai. Yeah, which if anybody um, Peking, yeah, the master Peking, mm-hmm. um, but we'd also help the, the Chinese, the flying tigers, yeah, and yeah. I mean, we'd, we'd, we'd definitely get send a bunch them of some, 40s and we'd send them some support. But the thing is, is that China turned out what it is today because of this war. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's started out the communists, well. No, communist Russia happened in like nineteen eighteen. Yeah, because they dropped out of World War One. Um, well, they dropped out of World War One because the Tsars were being killed by Lenin. So, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Lenin and his supporters kind of you know, whacking Tsar heads off the whole time. They didn't really care about World War One, but anywho, um, what eventually ended up happening was was after this great idea of island hopping, which was strategically great, but terrible for morale. If you look at Marine like there were some Marines that actually made it back from a lot of these like like Iwo Jima, Paliu, um oh, who's another one? Saipan was a good one. Carla. If you if you look at these Marines that actually made it back all of these it it was fighting an enemy that didn't quit. Yeah. At least the Germans, part, the
0: Germans would surrender and the Japanese yeah, wouldn't.
1: No, I mean, the Germans, I mean, half the time they knew that you would take them in. If Japanese, you surrendered, you feared for your life. Yeah. We So I know when we took, in the Battle of Tar War, that after the initial push, when we hit the northern beaches and we were pushing in, we get hit with such a wall of opposition. They came up with the idea to hit it from the West West Bank. And once they hit it from the West Beach and over, that's when they started pushing through. Yeah. Well, we had sent an air raid campaign to start taking out their headquarters. Well, we one of the bombers had ended up seeing one of the uh, motorcade going from one headquarters to another. Well, that was the field that was the general for the Japanese forces. Of yeah. the, and it had take, they had taken out their head command and control, which is why the Battle of Tarot, we actually won. We probably wouldn't have won that if we'd not taken out their command and control elements because they were so entrenched. Like, We were just throwing at, at, at them, and they were continuously repelling us, especially off of the Northern Islands. So, um, let's see. So, that that's a case in point on how hearts and minds are not relevant, I guess. Yeah, and, and I mean, hearts
0: I kind Adam, the only time they ever like, really came into effect big time were the Philippines.
1: Yeah, the Philippines was one Okinawa. To to an extent, they yeah. were throwing themselves off of cliffs in Okinawa too. Yeah, um, which but is there
0: hard. were like, there for the Pacific theater of operations. There was
1: no, it was it was really a scorched policy
0: because the, you got to think about it from the from the from the command and control aspect and the the boots on the ground aspect. Like they had. Pearl Harbor, which they lost a lot of people. Midway, just still lost a decent amount of people. Three thousand uh-huh. carrier. Um, Guadalcanal. Uh, let's see. Then the Guadalcanal uh, was a bloodbath. Pelt the baton, the other, baton Death March. Baton Death March, which was, a, I think, a big, a big reason why. the... You know, even though the morale was low, they still had something kind of to not prove, but fight for, I guess, this way. Because I mean, the battle the battle of the Philippines once MacArthur pushed back in there um, with the twenty fifth, the Tropic Thunder,
1: twenty fifth,
0: yeah. yeah um, whenever he pushed back in there with them, I mean that that battle lasted pretty much till the end of the war. Yeah, trying to push them out of Manila. I mean, heck,
1: they were, they were- there was still pockets fighting in like forty seven. So, yeah, I mean, that that's how determined determined this enemy was. Yeah, it was one. And of even four. then, it took it took not one but two bombs
0: dropped on yeah. them for them to be like, hey, maybe we should
1: pack it in up, boys, because
0: yeah. because like if you ever look at the the plans between the Nagasaki and the Hiroshima raids. It was either that or, or the invasion, invasion. And they had estimated, um, I think, in the first couple of days of fighting, it was
1: 1.2 million. Yeah. 1.2 million yeah. losses
0: just on our side.
1: Yeah. We're not talking, you know.
0: They were pull, they were getting ready to pull troops from Europe. The guys are just finished beating the Nazis to come over to basically bolster American forces.
1: And if anyone doesn't understand how well fortified <laughs> Japan is, they're an island nation. Yeah. They they have nothing but fortifications on every coast back then. Yeah. I mean it was, it, it would have made Normandy look like a cake Yeah. Like do you think the Germans fortified their crap in Normandy? No. They'd only been there a couple of years. These people had lived there for centuries. Yeah. Prepping for for a an invasion. Yeah. So it would have been terrible, which is why we do we did have drop the bombs. We had no choice when it came to like, American lives.
0: Yeah, because I mean, I don't think I think at that point even the even even the American I don't think the American public could have gotten behind after four years of war. I don't think they could have gotten behind the whole 1.2 million casualties estimated.
1: Uh, that was on the light note. Yeah, like we're not even. Like, if you don't understand, I can't remember what their their culture was, but the can't remember what the name of the Japanese culture was, but they... They were still living by the Samurai Code. That's right, the Samurai Code, thank you. Um, Which was death at all costs. Yeah. Like, you, you did everything you could to protect Japan. Like, Japan was home, which is why it took two bombs. Like, if you don't understand the scope and magnitude of what we dropped...
0: So, the proposed operation for the Japanese home islands near the end of World War II was called Operation Downfall. The operation was cancelled, obviously, when Japan surrendered after the atomic bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki and the Soviet declaration of war and the invasion of Manchuria. So the Soviets had invaded Manchuria in northern northern China. Um, but it was Operation no Olympic war, no and Operation Cornet set to begin in November 45. which we didn't reach it. Um, I'm trying to actually find the... Uh, let's see the actual, like, what their estimates were. Can't really seem to find anything. But their proposed timeline wasn't, it, was,
1: well, it wasn't going to until
0: 1947 or 1948.
1: So a minimum of two years. Well, you got to think they learned a lot during the island hopping campaigns because they were met with such stiff resistance after, like, we only took maybe a dozen islands in the island hopping campaigns. Yeah. About a dozen. And it took us four years to get a dozen. Yeah. I mean, it was
0: just it was massive.
1: Um, and if, if that doesn't tell, like, these are just little specks of land in the middle of, of the Pacific. We're talking inch by inch ground fighting in the heart of Japan, which, if anyone, if anyone, has any idea of the scope of the Japanese what any scope of the Japanese war effort, you'd understand that dropping bombs is it's good for America. Very good. Because Nagasaki and here in in if you understand how Nagasaki why they were targeted is because they were the hubs of their naval their naval their naval armadas. That's where their most of the dry docks were most of their retrofit Docks were was in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Most of all the carriers, they they sailed from Hiroshima. So their projected initial commitment
0: for the invasion of Japan was for Operation Olympic. Personnel was seven hundred five thousand five hundred fifty six troops, um, one hundred thirty six thousand eight hundred twelve vehicles. Supplies 1,205,730 or two hundred five thousand seven hundred thirty just in supplies tons and that's tons 11 infantry divisions 3 marine divisions uh, no armored divisions because it was going to be an amphibious assault 40 air groups for cornet it was personnel was 1,171,646 222,519 or 514 vehicles 1,000 or 1,741,023 tons of uh, supplies 20 infantry divisions Three marine divisions, two armored divisions, fifty airers. They were projecting um, on January fifteenth, nineteen forty-five. The U.S. Army Army Service Forces released a document, Redeployment of the United States Army after the Defeat of Germany. In it, they estimate that during the eighteen-month period after June nineteen forty-five through December of nineteen forty-six, the army would be required to furnish replacements for forty-three thousand dead and evacuated wounded every month. Jeez! It suggested that army losses alone in those categories excluding the Navy and Marine Corps, which would be approximately 863,000 through the first part of 1947, of whom 267,000 would be killed or missing.
1: Jesus Christ. Yeah. These are just projections. This is what they were
0: expecting 1,000 casualties per day. 1,000 dudes a day, and that's either dead or wounded, but either way. And this is why atomic bombs look so good. Planners estimated that a replacement stream of 100,000 men per month would be necessary.
1: <laughs> God. Well, uh, but back to the stratagems. MacArthur and Nimitz's strategy in the Pacific was chef's yes. Because yeah. the way that they handled each island, they handled each island differently based on how it was fortified. Um, they knew how to allocate resources, which was which so was the
0: like key. Operational environment briefs. OE briefs.
1: Yeah, OE briefs are the ticket. That, that's definitely what helped a lot of Because even then. A yeah. lot of the recon well, the great thing is we sent out we could send out numerous reconnaissance planes thanks to our carriers. Yeah. So we would we would literally scout each target months in advance before yeah. each each attack. And which is also why the the uh, the the planning for, the planning for um, Operation Downfall was such was was so laid out because we'd already from Okinawa we'd already taken as much reconnaissance as we could to understand, understand the, the mass and fortification of the Japanese. Yeah, because we're they time. were estimating
0: we were going to fight a Japanese force of three
1: hundred thousand then That's it. That doesn't account for the civilian population. Yeah, that's the thing. We'd be fighting a ground war with civilians. Yeah, because. By then, it would be every every civilian's a rifleman yeah. mentality, because that's just how they were. Yeah. You'd be fighting children. Yeah, because, I mean, they believed that the emperor was God. And- mm-hmm. Like, you'd be fighting ch- children, which, if you don't understand that <laughs> mentality, that will screw you up. Yeah, definitely. And talk to some of the vets from the Afghanistan and Iraq, Iraq wars. Just RPGs and AKs, man. Or them being donk mules for explosives Bombs and, yeah. I mean that was that was a big thing. Yeah. Which, looking back on it, like from a strategic standpoint, on why we dropped massive, two massive, massive atomic, atomic bombs, was because it was either them or us, and they only had three hundred thousand on the line, but we were set to lose one point two million. Yeah. Like it, it was no no brainer on having to use them. Now in today's world, you couldn't really do that. Because everyone has that power now, yeah. Then everyone's just going to start chucking atomics at every or nukes at everything. Yep. Um, the world wouldn't be here. So, needless to say, for stratagems and case in points for how how to understand your enemy, Chester Nimitz and Douglas MacArthur were definitely the two top tier.
0: And Pat, I mean, if you want to go back to the eastern or the western front on the European side,
1: Patton did Patton and Eisenhower. Yeah, they did understand their enemy great. Yep. Now, the ones that wouldn't, Montgomery, definitely didn't understand <laughs> really any Brit. Yeah. I, I hate to throw the Brits under the bus for, you know, World War II, but, I mean, if they if they could actually run a decent military campaign, they would have gotten forced from Dunkirk. Yeah. Like, that was a completely botched yeah. withdrawal.
0: Even the evacuation plan was terrible. Yeah,
1: it was a botched withdrawal. I mean, they didn't have the manpower of the ships or anything to. They were calling in civilian, um, like, uh, fishing oh. ships to come to pull. Yeah, fishing trawlers to come pull soldiers out. Yep. Then you have men waiting in water, waiting, wet, yep. nasty.
0: All while stupid. All while stupid guns are like doing
1: straight things. Like, key points on blunders? Dunkirk. Dunkirk's definitely another blunder of World War II. Like you, it was mix, it was mix and match on everything. But the whole key was, was who understood the enemy the most. It was a blunder on the German side, though. Most definitely a blunder, because well. I think Which it is was how they could pull out if they were. Von
0: Manstein, I think, was the commander of the armed forces at the time. Uh, not the armed forces, but he was commander of the army. At the very mm-hmm. so um, he wanted to push the he wanted to push the German army in and basically destroy what was left of that marine of that British expeditionary unit. But Goering, leader of the Luftwaffe, wanted to demonstrate his air power, and how it could basically do the job of the infantry, and uh, it turned out that it was not that case. Well, because if Manstein had put all is. his forces in um, and did it on a ground base, then I don't think the bricks would have recovered for that, which would have led into Operation Sea Lion, which was like a proposed invasion, invasion of, of England. England. But because Goering was high on...
1: Hitler's No, well,
0: morphine and opium and all that. Oh, that he thought that you know I can have my I can have my Luftwaffe go in and destroy it. it
1: Just didn't work out that way. No, and to be honest, that's really where the Germans lost the initiative. Because once they took France, I mean they they just kept sending bombers into Berlin, not not hitting relative targets, and they're just fortifying. They literally fortified all of London to where. Once they could build their forces back, once they got their Spitfires back under, because whenever the first initial battle of Berlin, Germany's had a or Britain. I'm sorry, Britain, mom, <laughs> too, too many bees, and it's getting late, so my <laughs> my brain is yeah, so initial, the initial initial part, of yeah, the it. initial part of the battle of Br- Britain, Britain. Blah, 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 Britain is was great for the Germans because they had the Brits outnumbered three to one. Here's but, the thing, Here's a, they were hitting, so originally the Battle of Britain,
0: where they were hitting all of the RAF um, bases, landing strips, all of their base of RAF power in the southern part of England, and they were, they were this, they're pretty dang close to the stuff. back of the RAF, but uh, I think it was,
1: it was a getting-
0: Hitler was getting he tired. was getting a little ambitious of it, yeah. and so Hitler was getting tired of waiting. That, and I think it was weather or something like that. But basically, they got the He111s got off course, and they started. They bombed London. And initially, it was an accident; they didn't mean to bomb London. But at that point, the Brit, or the uh, the British were like, "Nah, fuck that." So Hitler was like, "Oh, we bombed Britain. We can bom- or We can we bombed London. We can bomb London now." And so they basically shifted their campaign. From hitting the RAF uh, airfields to then bombing London. And that's basically what changed because the RAF were able to rebuild their airfields, get new hurricanes, spitfires, all their stuff. And then they were basically able to intercept. Plus they had, they had advanced radar technology at the time so they could see them as soon as they took off. In the airfields, reads, once they hit the, once they thing the English Channel, they were like, all right, cool. Scramble their fires, go up there and start knocking down planes.
1: So, well, and that's like the Germans had the initiative and they should have took it. So rather than, monotonously bombing the ever living crap out of London. They could have definitely. I mean well, honestly they, they probably could have, could have formulated a landing force they California. they could have formulated Operation Sea line to to succeed. Yeah. if the funny the thing is a lot of you not realize
0: this the uh, they had been talking to the um, Irish at the time. So oh. the Irish don't like the, Don't like the Brits. Um, and they were basically, they basically came to an agreement that if Germany ever invaded England, that the Irish would invade from Ireland their way. And basically that does. And, you know, go forward. There's a good movie about it. It's, it's not, obviously it's obviously not a history. It is historical, but it never happened. The eagle has landed. Michael Caine movie He plays a false maker. Great movie, but it kind of talks about how they were trying to get sea lion to go. Um, because I had a plan to capture Churchill. I mean that the planning factor of that was legit, but the rest of the movie wasn't. But so they—I mean—they were talking to the, what was the IRA at the time and trying to basically get the Irish to come in. Because the Irish actually sent a lot of troops. Or they sent. There was a lot of Irishmen that left and joined the English or the um, the German forces because they stayed in England that
1: much. Well, that, that was a, that's why I say England screwed up so much. Is because if they would have been smart and put put all because they were fighting on two fronts in Africa and in France. And trying to hold on to their colonies. And trying to hold on to their colonies. Which if you don't know they Which they end up losing a lot well they the the Prince of Wales, which was a battleship that they sent all the way they sent it all the way around the world into the South China Sea. And rather than rather than recalling all of their naval power. They were trying to hold on to all of these small colonies. Well, they sent the the Prince of Wales all the way down to South China Sea Mm -hmm. along with another destroyer. It was in World War I. I cannot remember the name of it, but it was another blunder. So the Japanese were doing air raids into China. Well, rather than, you know, pull their ships back, they said, well, we're going to attack the Japanese. they then attacked. This was, in forty one, yep, and they were like, "Well, they didn't attack uh, the United States. We're going to help our allies, essentially." And so the naval commander at the time didn't recognize air power. Yep, he he thought. That's it, the thing
0: though with Brits, like they never, they're never like on the. They always try to think back to like the Royal.
1: Well, if you look at Britain's. In their entire strategy, and they could never keep up with technology. They they've never been able to. So, like back when they were armored knights, they could never accept gunpowder and how how uh, how devastating actual gunpowder rifles were when they were used correctly, because they would use them on horseback rather than you know how the Revolutionary War and War of you know, <clears> the <throat> the war of uh, the seven years of war, et cetera, et cetera. I used my favorite word again. Look at that. Et cetera. I used it again. Knew I'd get it in here somewhere, but then they moved from horseback nights to, you know, line units where they were marching out and shooting each other in column lines. And then they could never catch up to, you know, a cartridge They were still with muskets during the War of 1812, into the Afghanistan Wars. And finally, when they finally accepted, they manufactured the Great Lee Enfield. Wonderful weapon. That's how they could stave off most of the German army was thanks to that weapon. But, anyway, they could
0: never, they could never get on the page of the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, they can never get on page with you know so anyways back to this back to these the warship um, they had spotted a carrier or they'd spotted they'd, they there were fishing trawlers that had spotted them and they knew that there was a carrier group group off the coast rather than maneuver his forces elsewhere they just said they just stood there and said no we're, we're just gonna stand our ground a battleship. Can take it whatever they throw at us. Yeah, they sank the whole. Yeah, they sank the,
0: the Prince Wales and the repulse
1: and the repulse. That's yeah, what it was. The repulse thing. and um, just shows you how poorly strategical most like Montgomery was a terrible strategist. Yep. Um, most most of the naval commanders of the Brit of Britain's empire were not, good. were not. They they couldn't accept naval or air power and that's eventually how they lost most of their most of their fleet yep. was due to air raids. But I think we've talked long enough. So, yep. I think we've we've hit a pretty good yep. end point here um just on basic stratagem and you know, we'll we'll just label this from the 1940s, I guess, cuz we yep. we stayed, in we stayed II, really in that in the World War II era for most of the time. Like we did hit on a little bit of a recent but We'll we'll stay more into the World War II era just because that's where we're most knowledgeable. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That in Vietnam. That in Vietnam. I absolutely have been studying Vietnam for the past three months. I guess really hard. And then I've actually gotten into ancient strategy, which is. That's a whole other. A whole whole other other realm, realm. which we'll get Robert spun up on because he's going to learn about Lucidities. And, uh, more. uh
0: a lot of reading,
1: but anyway, guys,
0: we appreciate you hanging out with us, um, listening to us basically rambling about nerd shit, <laughs> it's yeah, so. just
1: nerding out over here, uh, but we figured we, why not? It's a, it's a good talking point. Um, we had, we are trying to branch out a little bit, see what our audience base likes because no one's leaving us comments. Yeah. Bleep bloop something down there in the comments, please give us something you like about what we're doing and give us something you don't like. I don't care. Just put something down there so we can figure out how we can base what y'all want to hear off of it. Um, Because without, without any direction, we're just going to keep shooting, shooting at lights until we, we hit a good one. Yep. So uh, YouTube content, hopefully will be coming out soon. Thanks to our guys down at eight, four, three. We're uh we're actually gonna come up with a great little header for our new videos so that way it's not just Yeah, outlaws, gun gun view gun gun drills or yeah. whatever yeah. Yeah. we've been putting on there. But we'll actually come up with a great, you know, intro video. Something to something to at least make our YouTube videos better. Um But without further ado. Alright guys. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening.
0: Thank you for listening to the Outlaw Podcast today. Remember, like, subscribe, and share. If you enjoyed what you heard, leave a comment. It helps us. Also, we're open to taking any any topics. Just give us some time to do some research. And once again, we will release episodes once a week uh, if you enjoy.